0: I don't know if you ever noticed but there's certain things especially certain technologies that seem to have changed drastically over the years but if you stop and think about it they're really essentially the same so i was thinking even as the simple basketball shoe right that started out with the chuck taylor the canvas shoe with the guy who took a waffle iron and some rubber and just you know made the sole and stuck it on the bottom threw some laces on versus the air jordan today right with all the fanciness and technology and support and everything velcro whatever everything it's got but in the end it's essentially this piece of material that you stick on your foot it's the same thing you think of uh the automobile right the tesla versus the model a tesla's got what everything all your satellite technology can go like a zillion miles an hour and tons of torque, everything you name it, but in the end it's four wheels and some seats, and it gets you from point A to point B. Very different, but essentially the same. The phone is a great one, right? You guys are all holding them in your hands now, and they go back to the day when you would hold it like this. I wasn't there, but you'd have the speaker and mic, the receiver in front of you, and Speak, and then it went to the this, these days, right? And now it's these days, right? It's essentially the same, though. It's a communication device between two people or, or more. Very different, but the same. And I bring this up because our text today is a little bit like that. On first reading of the text, it almost seems like nothing more than an ancient historical logbook. Just a simple recounting and, and recording of David's various victories and plunderings as he subdues and organizes his kingdom. And thus it feels uh, very foreign to us, doesn't it? I mean, chariots and Moabites and articles of uh, silver and bronze, and animals being hamstrung and places with names like Methagama. It all just seems pretty far away ancient, irrelevant, and in one sense it is, but theologically we must remember that David's kingdom is anticipatory. It foreshadows and looks forward to the ultimate promised kingdom of God that has come through his long-awaited king, Jesus Christ. It looks forward to his very son and a kingdom that he has brought through his cross and resurrection and that he's bringing in to his fullness now. And thus it really anticipates our times. This text connects directly to us. We live in God's kingdom with Jesus as our king, just as the Israelites lived in God's kingdom with David, his first chosen king. And this this this, this log, this log book is actually a sketch, a pattern, a blueprint, if you will, of our kingdom life now. The context is different. The customs are different. The technology's completely changed. Names like Rehob and Jehoshaphat and Toy are not popular baby names anymore. But the basic of God's Word, the basics that we see here of kingdom life, have not really changed. So we need to take a look at this for a minute and reflect on ourselves, on our lives, because it actually speaks straight to us. And the first thing I want us to notice from this text, the first kingdom basic that I want us to notice is universal submission. Universal submission. What we can't miss in this chapter as David commences his rule is the all-out military campaign against his enemies. You can't miss it. Verse 1, after this, David defeats defeated the Philistines. Verse 2, and he defeated Moab. Verse 3, David also defeated Hadeser, the son of Raab, the king of Zobah. Verse uh, 5, and when the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hadeser, king of Zoab, David struck down 22,000 men of the Syrians. Verse 13, if you skip down, and David made a name for himself when he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites. It's interesting, the word for defeat, or struck down, is actually repeated seven times in the first 13 verses. And if you had a map, and you put a pen in each of these locations in the Middle East, uh, of of these battles of David conquering, you would find that you would have the Philistines in the west, the Moabites in the east, Zobah and the people of Damascus in the north, the Edomites in the south, in every direction. Now, at a pure secular reading, this just seems like more territorial struggling and and border skirmishes in the Middle East, a lot like we still read about today. A a new tyrannical leader has grabbed power, and he's doing his best to take control of the major resources and the trade routes so he can have absolute control for his own ego and power trip. But all we have to do is jump back a chapter into chapter 7 And remember, there's something much bigger happening here. So chapter 7, verse 10 reminds us, and it says, And I, that's the Lord, will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the times that I appointed judges over my people Israel. I will give you rest from all your enemies. David is actually acting in accordance with God's great salvation plan. That's why it says twice in the text, in verse 6 and in verse 14, and the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. You see, God had promised Abraham more than 14 generations earlier that he was going to bless his people with a special land and a home of rest, and blessing, and that through them the whole world was going to be blessed. Through Israel, through God's King and and His people, God is going to bring His salvation to the world. That's what these battles are about. You see, the problem is, God's kingdom, His good work to restore His rule and blessing in this world has enemies in all directions. From the very beginning, many have been persistently fighting against God and his rightful rule. And when we see this big picture, we understand that these victories, these nations being brought into submission, are actually incredible acts of goodness, acts of blessing, for all of us Moab defeated had it easier, smashed the Syrians wiped out good blessings for all of us now I realize there may be some details here in, in the text that that rub us the wrong way so that we might to doubt whether these are are truly good acts like the fact that David has two-thirds of the captured Moabites lined up and executed. I don't know if you noticed that. He took them, lined them up in three lines of the peoples, three long lines laid out, and two of them executed everybody. It seems wrong, excessive, terrible, violent, cruel. But as John Woodhouse points out, we need to respond carefully. First, we need to remember that the scriptures make it very clear that God takes no pleasure in violence is not delight in suffering and death he sent his son to conquer all death second when we see such acts of violence committed by david and god's people it does not mean that everything about their actions and their means was approved by god david has got not god's final perfect king and judge as jesus will be He is a flawed, human, sinful representative who often oversteps and makes mistakes. We'll see some obvious examples of this in the next few weeks, in the next text. Third, and finally, well, not finally, but third, we we must be careful about judging God's judgments. God has been merciful and patient with the Moabites for years, If you read through your old testament you would see how terrible they were full of gross injustice in their lives and they've abused his patience and mocked him and finally their judgment has come what's amazing is that he actually saves one-third of them out of sheer grace and finally what we need to see is that it doesn't have to be this way nobody has to be defeated Nobody has to be destroyed under God's just judgment. Look at uh, at King Toy, TOI in verse 9. When Toy, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated the whole army of Hadadezer, Toy sent his son Jorab to King David to ask about his health and to bless him because he had fought against Hadadezer and defeated him, for Hadadezer had often been at war with Toy. And Jorah brought him articles of silver, of gold, and of bronze. King Toy hears of David's victories. Perhaps he heard that God was giving him the victories. And he wisely chooses not to fight, but to submit to David's rule. And whatever his motives are, it's the right choice. He seeks peace and he he and his kingdom are spared, and they actually end up partaking of all the kingdom blessings, the undeserved blessings that will flow. But the point is, as God establishes his kingdom, all within its bounds will come under his rule. Whether by forced subjection or by willing submission, he will reign, all will bow. And that is good, good news. This is a a good kingdom pattern for us to see. As Christians today, living under Jesus' rule, as he reigns in heaven, this reminds us that his kingdom, his rule in this world will come in full. Every soul on this planet that is living in rebellion will be judged and destroyed Or they will come and submit in peace to him. All the evil and injustice and corruption of people and of society that seems so out of control today will not go on forever. Every knee will bow. Thy kingdom will come on earth as it is in heaven, universal submission. And this means a couple of things for us, a couple of important things. First of all, it means hope, guys real hope for god's people yes we have to face the reality that many people in every direction around our lives are in conflict with our creator god and king they are fighting against his rule they hate his ways and goodness and therefore they're against his people and persecution and conflict are real and even to be expected but god's victory is coming and it's sure He is waiting patiently, the Bible tells us, that all should repent. But like the Moabites, there will come a day when his judgment comes and it's done. And this is good news. There can be no righteous kingdom. There can be no heaven, as we may call it, without the putting down of all evil and rebellion. When we pray, thy kingdom come, this is what we pray for. Now, secondly... Besides this giving us hope, this universal submission idea, it gives us um, a mission of warning. Not warring, we're to be a people of warning. As, As the clock ticks in a sense, we have a job to do, and it's not a job of hamstringing horses and killing off, you know, all the people that we think aren't Christians. No, God's final king already reigns. He's already conquered evil and death at the cross, sacrificing his life as a lamb, but he's coming back as a lion to judge. And the cross started the clock, the ticking clock. It's like that overtime clock in a soccer game where you don't know how much time is left. That's the time we live in. That's our kingdom era. You might not think of the gospel as a warning mission, but that's really what it is, it's a warning mission. That God's true king is coming to judge and all in rebellion will be struck down. To make this clear, to warn people is the most loving thing we can do. And it's our job, it's our life mission as believers. How was King Toy and all his people? How were they spared? What does it say in verse nine? When King Toy of Hamath heard, somebody told him, he heard that God's king had come and that he was on the march and that God was with him in victory. He heard the truth and he submitted and he served and he lived and his people lived. My friends, we are a people of of warning. We are supposed to be warning people with the gospel And it's not the most popular angle that we like to think of when it comes to the gospel. I much prefer Jesus loves you and he died for you and he offers you salvation, which is absolutely true. But the other side of the coin is he is ruler and judge, and he will destroy all who continue in rebellion against him. People need to know this and we need to speak it. And you know what? It is a very powerful part of the gospel jay choi he told me how about his his faith journey coming to know the lord and a big part of it or early part of it i should say was when he saw a chick tract you know those chick tracks you might remember them if you're were you know conscious in the 60s but (laughs) a lot of them very graphic they had one on hell I might, I might not have agreed with all the way they presented things, but it made him, sobered him, made him think about the reality of judgment. Remember Russ Brandon, one of our elders here, when he got saved, I remember asking him, how did you feel? He heard the gospel, he repented. I said, how did you feel? And he said, I felt relieved and very kind of sobered. And I said, what do you mean? He said, "I," he goes, you know one of those Those cartoons where the anvils hanging over their head and they don't know it and then they move to the side and they go slamming down. He said, I realized for the first time in my life that I had been under judgment and it was coming and I had just escaped. God's kingdom will involve universal submission. As we see with David's kingdom, every knee will bow. And it's good news It's good news of hope and it's a good news of warning. But there's a second element here of this kind of kingdom pattern that happened back then and happens for us, and that is a return of all wealth and homage. You may have noticed that with each victory, with each nation coming into submission, there is something given over or taken back. So in verse 1 with the Philippians, when they are defeated, we are told that David took just sounds like a random city name but all the commentators point out that actually it's a figurative way of of speaking its meaning is the bridal mother city in other words it's saying David took the reins of the Philistines they aren't just destroyed they come to serve and give homage now over to David the Moabites in verse 2 they become servants of David and bring their tribute the Syrians in verse 6 The same thing. They become servants and offer their tribute. In each case, they're coming and bringing and serving. The king of Zobah, in verse 8, it says that David took his gold and shield and bronze and items from all his articles. Toy willingly gives them over. And then we get to verse 11. It kind of sums things up. There also King David dedicated to the Lord, together with the silver and the gold that he had dedicated from all the nations he subdued, from Edom to Moab, the abenites the Philistines, the Amalek, and from the spoils of Hadadezer, the son of Reob, King of Zoba. You see, the pattern set for the kingdom of God is that when it's fully established, all the wealth and homage and service of the nations comes flowing back to God. It comes back to God, its rightful owner. The one who deserves all honor and glory and praise. And this isn't just a pattern here, right? It's not just a pattern set here. The prophets pick up on this. Isaiah 60 talks about all the wealth of the nations coming back predicts it. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult because the abundance of the sea shall be returned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. The multitude of camels shall cover you. The sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you, and all who despise you shall bow down at your feet, and they shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Haggai the prophet says this, this is one of my favorites, for thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake the nations so that the treasures of all the nations shall come in, and I will... Fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. Their silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord. It's like he's hanging them up, down, upside down and shaking them out. It's all falling out of their pockets. Of course, it's reflected in the Gospels when the Magi show up from all eight nations and bring the frankincense and myrrh to Jesus. And it's finally pictured in its fullness in the book of Revelation, chapter 21, when it says this, By its light will the nations walk. It's talking about the heavenly kingdom. And the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. This is a wonderful thing. We are meant for this. We were created by God to live for his honor and glory and to steward all his wealth to his praise. It's the nature of who we are. Worshippers. It's in this that we actually find our meaning and purpose and experience joy of actually being our true selves. This is what was lost as sin entered the world. In our rebellion we became idolaters, worshiping created things before our creator, robbing him of his due wealth and homage and using it to our own glory And it ruined us. It's continuing to ruin us. It's like a drug addict who keeps indulging and abusing a a good medicine because it gives them a temporary high, but over time it sucks the life right out of them. God isn't being stingy as he brings all the wealth and homage back to him. He's putting things right. He's actually restoring our life. Our glory as well. It's all His. And it will all be returned to Him. And you know, this should give us a little bit of perspective on all our stuff. On our accumulation of wealth. On on, on the priorities that we have with our prosperity. And it should give us some perspective on on the wealth and resources of the world often dominated and hoarded by the wicked and the greedy. We hear so much about it, right, about the unequal distribution of wealth and the poor getting poorer and corporate hoarding and the blight of of, of generational poverty, and these are true and real issues of every nation, and we need to remember it is all going back to the Lord, which is really good news because look at the final element. Of the kingdom pattern we see here in chapter 15, uh, chapter 8. Look at verse 15. So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all his people. Justice and equity to all his people. David, unlike the many kings of the nations, has not been brought to power and given the wealth of the nation so he can use them to to, for himself to hoard all the wealth for his benefit or to focus it only on his specific group he is to use it in the service of justice and equity for all people all his people all who have submitted to his rule this is why God gave him victory he's God's king it's interesting, at, at that time, if you know your Bible, even at that time, Israel had become like the other nations in all their societal injustice. They had wanted a king like the other nations. He had given them Saul, and now they were like the other nations. The rich abused the poor. Read about it in Amos. The privileged trampled the, uh, those underprivileged. The powerful oppressed the weak. But David's mandate is to put things right. Justice and equity for all this is a king you want to be conquered by this is a king you want to submit to this is the kind of leadership we still long for today and struggle to achieve we have to set up checks and balances we have term limits realizes that if anybody stays in power too long it's probably a bad thing abuse of power and injustice are what we expect from our human leaders After all these years, no matter what country or nation or neighborhood, that's what we expect. But, of course, the good news again is that David is but a pale shadow of the king of justice and righteousness that's come in our Savior Jesus. The prophet Isaiah, 150 years after this, after David's death, prophesied, For unto us a child is born, To us, a son is given of the increase of his government. There shall be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. My friends, Jesus demonstrated this kind of kingdom in his earthly life. He inaugurated it at the cross, and he's coming back to bring it in full justice and equity, righteousness for all. And we need to live in light of this now. We need to be people who pursue right and just circumstances for our community, for our family, for our nation. We need to stop and think about what this might mean in our own relationships. As spouses, as as parents, as co-workers. What does that look like? What behavior might need to be modified in our lives to promote righteousness and and equity? It's a mockery when we preach justice and equity for all and we can't treat our spouse right. We need to start at home, we need to start right here and kind of move out in concentric circles. All the while, knowing and trusting as we struggle and fail and struggle again, that our hope is yet to come. Thy kingdom come, where all will come into submission to God's King, and all wealth and honor will return to him, and his justice and righteousness will come to all. Let's live in light of those basics, guys. Let's pray. Father, may we start, each one of us, by submitting our lives fully to your rule, giving our wealth and all our praise over to you and pursuing your justice and your equity in our own lives now and every day